Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for this um, day. We thank you for the beginning of Advent, for the beginning of a new church year. Lord Jesus, we ask that as we look at the text this morning, that you would um, be with us in our waiting, and that you would help us to wait expectantly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. All right, so here we are, as I mentioned in the prayer, at the beginning of another church year. So Happy New Year. Um, According to the church calendar, Advent starts another year, and if you're following along, we start the um, Gospel of Mark in the Sunday lectionary. So the Sunday Gospel readings this year is year B. You can see that in the leaflet on the top right. And um, we, we were in year A, so we were primarily in Matthew. This year we start Mark, and Mark is often known as the bullet point gospel, whereas Matthew is lengthier, and Matthew uh, is looking at the Hebrew people, looking at the Jewish traditions, um, and Luke is looking at the Greek traditions and how the faith talks to the Greeks and the Gentiles. And of course, John does his own thing. Um, He's got his own method. Um, The Gospel of Mark is that bullet point gospel that gets right to the point. And some people love that, and some people don't love that. But as we enter here into year B, starting a new year, we start with a season of waiting known as Advent. Now, most of you probably know the word Advent is not originally from English, right? Although it's become an English word, sometimes we use it um, outside of the church. We talk about the advent of the printing press, for example. So the coming of, right? The, we don't use it very often that way, though. But Advent comes from Latin, from the word that means the coming or the arrival, the coming or the arrival. And so it makes us ask, or we ought to ask, the coming or the arrival of what? Or of whom? And of course, we know that Advent's about the coming or the arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it has this element of waiting built in, but it also has an element of certainty built in. And we're going to look at those two things this morning. Waiting and certainty. The first, in waiting, we've had a year of years for waiting, haven't we? Right? On a national level, on a world level, 2020 has given us lots of time to wait and to think about waiting and to be frustrated about waiting and to maybe go a little nuts about waiting. Those of you that are in school you know you were waiting to see whether you would go back to school or not. Or if your parents that have children in school, I know here in public schools at Lakewood, uh, the school was going to resume in person, and literally the day after they did orientation, they changed the color coding of the county, and so schools went virtual again. And oh, the parents were ready to pull their, their hair out. Waiting. Or if you are in college, you were waiting a long time to see when you would be going back to campus, if you would be going back to campus. 
if students would be together. We've been waiting on coronavirus, news of the vaccine, news of treatments, therapeutics, the numbers, the colors of our county. We've been waiting on news about the election. It's been a year of waiting. And the church, in its wisdom, sees that God, in His wisdom, gives us the gift of waiting throughout Holy Scripture. There was a study famously conducted by Stanford University back in 1972. A psychologist by the name of Walter Mischel conducted it, and I verified with my brother, who's got some training in psychology, that this is true. Uh, The study was called the Marshmallow Experiment. Has anyone ever heard of the Marshmallow Experiment? All right, some of you have. The Marshmallow Experiment um, was this experiment done on children who were aged three to five years, and these um, scientists went into a classroom, and they offered students a choice between a small but immediate reward or two small rewards if they waited for a period of 15 minutes. Now, a period of 15 minutes is an eternity for a child, right? But they would go and, and they would observe the students and how they coped with their waiting. And actually, there's some interesting outcomes in that part of, this, of the study as well. But what they found is that the students who waited ended up enjoying their reward much more than the students who could not delay their gratification. So the waiting actually made the reward that much more sweet, whether it was that marshmallow or pretzel stick was the alternative thing that they used. Interestingly enough, they followed these students for the next few years, all the way to 1988. And then they looked once again up these students to see where they were in life. And the ones that could delay, could delay self-gratification actually were more successful in life. Now, how do you judge that, right? Obviously, that's a hard thing and there's flaws in these studies, but there was this trend that those that were able to delay self-gratification were right. What the study confirms is what we all know from our own experience. And that is that when we wait for a reward, the reward is that much sweeter. Think about your own life and when you save money for a purchase rather than going out and putting it on your credit card, right? You put it on your credit card, you've got that thing right away, you're excited about it, you use it, and you spend the next six months, maybe more, paying it off. That's not so great. And yet it still entices us. But then think of the opposite, when we anticipate something. When we save for something, we put $20 away a month for something, and we get it finally, and we own it outright, and it's ours, right? Some people will say that the anticipation can be as good as the thing itself. Interestingly, in Scripture and in our lives today, God gives us times of waiting. And sometimes he commands us to wait. Sometimes he asks us to wait. And sometimes he forces us to wait. 
Let's think about that for a minute. So, what are some times that he commands us to wait? Well, a good example would be the one that I just used about saving for something. He commands us to wait. We can't just go out and take something that's not ours, right? We have to work for it, we make money, we purchase it, and then we get it. Sometimes he asks us to wait for things. Like waiting for the right job to come along, and not just the first thing that comes down the track. Or waiting for him to give us some feedback into a decision that we're praying about. Sometimes he asks us to wait. Sometimes he forces us to wait. Like when he doesn't answer a prayer right away. Or when he doesn't answer a prayer in the way that we think he should answer the prayer. right? And therefore our circumstances that he has us in are forcing us to wait. Personal waiting can be very difficult. Mrs. Templeton and I, Leah's back in the pew and on the organ bench for the first time today, um, have been waiting a long time for her leg to mend since September. And I know she's been frustrated, as have I at times. Why won't this thing just heal? Right? Sometimes the Lord forces us to wait. But the interesting thing with waiting is that God uses it in us. And we can choose to either wait frustratedly and be agitated and be upset, or we can wait knowingly, trusting in Him and certain of His goodness. We have that choice. And the church recognizes that, and so it gives us seasons of waiting, reflecting the Bible. Waiting is always good. It's always good. Think of some of these illustrations from Scripture. Abraham and Sarah, Abraham the great patriarch of Israel, are asked to wait for God to give them a son. You remember the story, right? The angels come to Abraham and Sarah and they have this feast and they promise that they will conceive, she will conceive in her old age course, she laughs, right? And Abraham also waits patiently until Isaac's born. No, that's not what happens, is it? Do they wait? Well, they wait for a little while, and then what happens? They try to take matters into their own hands, right? Hey, there's this slave woman of mine. You should sleep with her, Abraham. Let's get this thing going. And of course, Ishmael is the result with all sorts of heartache. The Hebrews are forced to wait in their, for their freedom. They're forced to wait 400 years, Scripture tells us, as slaves of the Egyptians. Moses is told to wait for God's plagues. Our first commandment, our, our first communion students know this well. We go over the ten plagues found in Exodus and how God uses those plagues to set his people free. But of course, Moses is told that that has to happen first. King Saul is supposed to wait for Samuel to make a sacrifice in the middle of a battle. And King Saul, of course, decides he can't wait for the prophet. And so he offers his own sacrifice. That doesn't end so well either. But then we have people who do wait, 
and who are obedient in their waiting. The world waiting for the Messiah is a mix. But St. Mary is asked to wait for Jesus to be born to her. And she does. And she says yes. The apostles are told to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost before sharing the gospel. And they do. And the Holy Spirit comes. And so it is that in Scripture, when we wait on God, unlike in this world, we wait with certainty. We wait knowing that God has our best interest at heart. And in choosing that, we can know that God is perfecting us in our waiting. You know, the season of Advent and Lent actually have something in common. They come out of another type of waiting, a more personal type of waiting. The season of Lent precedes Easter. Of course, the season of Advent precedes Christmas. And historically in the church, Easter and Christmas were the two big holidays where baptisms were done. And so it became that those that were preparing to be baptized would wait during these seasons. And they wouldn't just wait, but they would wait expectantly. They would fast. They would pray. They would prepare to do something, to be something. As they prayed and fasted, they would be instructed, and they would learn together, and they would wait together. And pretty soon the church realized this was a really good idea, and not just for those that were baptized, but the fact that those that had been baptized needed to revisit this again and again. And so it became the season of Lent and Advent became times of waiting. O come, O come, Emmanuel, we sung. So here we are once again, waiting. What are we waiting for? Well, there's two different things in Advent, and I often find that people get the first, but not the second. The first, of course, is more obvious, that we're waiting for Jesus, right? We're waiting and remembering how Jesus came in Bethlehem. As we heard Gabriel read from Isaiah 64, verse 5, in our Old Testament first lesson, the prophet Isaiah sums up the situation of the world, both Israel and mankind, when he writes, Behold of God, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? You see, there's this question, shall we be saved? That was the reality. The situation before the Hebrews, they had this promised Messiah, and yet they were waiting in their sins. And God was justly angry with them. And they had been there a long time. The chapter starts out with a people waiting in desperation as the prophet cries out in 64 verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, says Isaiah. What's that imagery? That, that God would literally rip apart the heavens and come down and do something to help us, to save us. In Psalm 80 that we read today, it captures the spirit of this so well, doesn't it? Did you catch that? 
Psalm 80 is talking about that. It's the heart of God's people. And we had this refrain three times in the psalm. Restore us again, O God of hosts. Show the light of your countenance, and we shall be whole. We said that three times together. And so we remember the desperate state that the world was in before Jesus came to it. We remember that waiting. And yet, in some ways, we're not a stranger to that world. We still see much of it around us, right? For while Jesus has come, not all the world has bent the knee to, the, to Jesus and to his will. And fallenness still abounds. Sin's effects on nature, illnesses, plagues, viruses, disasters still happen. Great darkness still exists. The cruelty of mankind stuck in sin is still all over the place. The use of other human beings as slaves, forced labor, human trafficking, the cheapness of life in euthanasia, brutality, crime, abortion. All of these things show the darkness of human nature and a world that has not yet completely submitted to its Lord. And we see the darkness in the church even sometimes, with bitterness, personal agendas, infighting, betrayal even. Perhaps most starkly and sensitively we see it in ourselves. The sins we commit as we hurt other people that we love. What we say or what we do, or things that we don't say and don't do and fail. Our unfaithfulness in our promises to God and in not being who he's called us to be. Some of us might even personally remember a time when God was not part of our life. Some of us can remember before our baptism. And some of us, while the Holy Spirit is in our life, can still see the darkness, those dark parts of our hearts, of our souls, that are still not in submission to the Lord. So you see, the bleak midwinter that famous phrase from that Christmas carol is not just out there, and it's not just talking about snow and weather. It's talking about the bleakness of life without Jesus. And so, even so, the King and the Savior, Emmanuel, has come. Even, that, even though that's true, we still await the fullness of his kingdom. So on the other hand, we wait with certainty because we wait knowing that Jesus did come. We wait knowing that he came and battled and won the victory for us. Because while the Jews had the promise of Jesus, we have the promise of Jesus in the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus himself in the Holy Spirit. And God has torn open the heavens and descended. If you're a Christian, you know this. Perhaps you've experienced it. Of course you've experienced it. We have Emmanuel, God with us, even as we wait. We wait in certainty. And so we come to the second waiting of Advent. Today's Gospel passage, that bullet point Gospel of Mark, gets right to the point, And Jesus himself draws our attention to it in chapter 13, verse 24. Where Jesus says, But in those days after that tribulation, 
the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds of great power and glory. And then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. You see, Jesus here isn't talking about his first coming. He's right there standing in front of them. His coming as a baby in Bethlehem has already happened, of course. No, Jesus is talking about his second coming, which is the second waiting. The waiting that we wait on now. When Jesus will come not in great humility, but rather in great glory. Not as the defenseless little child, but as the king and conqueror. Jesus is coming a second time, friends. But this time, he will come not to bring salvation, but judgment on sin. And this is good news. You know, it sounds dark. It sounds gloomy. The imagery is terrifying, and it's meant to be. But it's good news for the Christian. Because for the Christian, when Jesus comes, all those things in you that are dark, that haven't been excised, that haven't been perfected, that haven't been melted away, will be. All those things that you stumble with in your faith, those sins that you say in confession, those sins that you might repeatedly go to confession for, those things that you just can't seem to get a grasp on, all of that, is the promise, will be destroyed along with a world that rebels against God. It will be consumed in fire, and that fire will be perfecting. That's good news. That's the second waiting. That's the second advent of Jesus. All of darkness will disappear. All of those things will be done. Even death itself, that final waiting for the resurrection, will be destroyed. And the time of waiting, then, will be completely over. So, as we enter into this season for these next four Sundays, what are we doing? Well, we're remembering what Advent is. First, we're remembering Jesus' coming in great humility to a, in history, to a real people, a chosen people, to a lost humanity. Secondly, we're remembering that Jesus came to ourselves, that Jesus came to us personally, not just to a people, but to you and me with saving help so that we might be remade. And then we're remembering that Jesus will come again in glory to the world, to the future of a final judgment where the devil, evil, and all sin will be done away with for good. And to each one of us who will stand before him to give an account for all the things he gave us to do in our life and to see what we will look like as we're perfected in his image. That's what Advent's all about. That's the journey we're entering here. In a simple word, Advent is about waiting with certainty and therefore it's about hope. That there's something better. That there's something worth waiting for. It's a reminder 
that we are to use this time not just to wait, but to prepare. To prepare the way of the Lord. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Amen.